please note there is discussion of murder in this episode. Use discretion when listening. You know, Spotify releases Wrapped every year, which provides analytics and data on listening habits and preferences, and that also includes podcasts, which, speaking of which, thank you. As those of you who listen on Spotify, this podcast was in the top 10% most shared globally, and Culture Changers is also in the top 15% of most followed podcasts. Ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. It means so much to me. Anyway, Apple Podcasts just released their top show list, and no surprise, true crime reigns supreme in 2022. And it's so fascinating, right? I love true crime. But there's an insidious challenge with all the true crime podcasts, and that is that the criminal is the one who we as a population focus on. My guest today is Amy B. Chesler, who is not only an award-winning author, but a victim in a real-life true crime. Through sharing her incredibly brave story of abuse and her mother being murdered by the hands of her own brother, she set out to change the landscape of true crime. Because turns out, our obsession is totally on the wrong thing. You will not be able to turn off this conversation with Amy. Before we jump into it, if you are looking to start 2023 with a clean slate, there's still time to join my clearing challenge. It has a great community, a fabulous way to clear out what no longer serves you, and invite something new, fresh, and aligned in the new year. Just go to allisonhair.com forward slash clearing, or you can find it in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Amy B. Chesler. If you'd like to listen to these episodes ad-free and early and support an independent podcaster, that's me, sign up at patreon.com forward slash culture changers or go to allisonhair.com for the direct link. I'm really excited to have you on. Welcome, Amy Chesler. Amy B. Chesler. What does the B stand for? It stands for Beth. And I hang on to the B because my mom named me Amy Beth in hopes of like, it means house of love. So she wanted, that was her wish for me. But also ABC is kind of badass. So. Oh, that is badass. Yeah. <laughs> so Look I at leave that. the B in there. <laughs> yeah. So I just got finished reading your book, Working for Justice. And holy shit. It is, I mean, you're a an award-winning author and uh, brilliant writer. I could not put it down. Can you, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell me the story behind the book? It's called Working for Justice, One Family's Tale of Murder, Betrayal, and Healing. Buckle up, everybody. Mm. (laughs) Um, Wow, I appreciate those very kind words. So um, my book, Working for Justice, I just a really quick thing. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. You know, that's some, a skill I've honed my entire life, but they always say, write what you know. I had no idea what I knew until my mom's murder occurred. Um, and so it took me a long time to heal and be in a space where I was okay to share that story. But the book working for justice is basically the, the, um, my experience in our criminal justice system, uh, in America, my, on September 25th, 2007, my mother was murdered. I say often, and by the way, something I like to share is that that day, that exact day, September 25th, 2007, became America's National Murder Victims Remembrance Day. Just coincidentally. Wow. 
coincidentally, um, not because of my mother. And so after that, I learned that like in 2020, I think. Um, and that kind of just impelled me to have this mission to share our story. My mom was a teacher. I was a teacher. I kind of always believed that she wouldn't mind being used as an example. So this book that I wrote um, is a, an accumulation of a lot of experiences, a lot of heartache, a lot of heartbreak and um, healing after a really traumatic experience. Again, like I said, I lost my mom on September 25th, 2007. I often say that um, she, I'm a victim of domestic violence. I'm also a survivor, but my mother is not. So I lost her after about a 10-year domestic violence battle with my brother, um, against my brother, if you will. Um, and most and people would think it's your dad, right? Almost. The first question I almost yeah. always receive is, your dad? No, my brother. And um, something I'll get into is that sharing that story revealed how common that is. I have received so many message for, messages from women saying, thank you for sharing your story. You were It really was the slap in the face I needed to kind of create these boundaries that your your mom should have had. And they don't say that last part, but that's that's the unspoken por- portion is by sharing our story, we're helping heal and perhaps keep safe a lot of other people. Um, something I talk about is sibling abuse too. And 50% of American children are face some sort of sibling abuse in their lifetime. So that's another reason why I shared our story. I found that out. 50%. Writing one and two. You know, well, I got to yep. understand this, you know, like, and I, we always joke about this in my family, not to joke about this, but I called the child abuse hotline on my brother when I was a young yeah. kid. And it was very commonplace for us to kick each other's asses. You know, we had, we had six kids living in a house. And so and I wonder is... what, what constitutes as a, we didn't look at it as abuse. You yeah. know what I mean? It was just the way you communicated. So what is, what is uh, sibling abuse look like that is maybe classified yeah. in a different way now? Well, something I've learned through my writing and my experiences is that the definition, the general definition of abuse is really skewed. Abuse, if you think about it, is the misuse of power over another person, right? There's this imbalance of power that one person uses to manipulate, to get them to do something that they don't want to do, to abuse them, to physically uh, demean them or, or harm them, to emotionally or mentally demean them. Those are all ways you know so i mean are we all a, guilty you know to, or are we all to a victims certain degree to, yeah. well i like to say with great power comes great responsibility so yeah for the most part most people once they get a taste of uh, a power will abuse it to a certain degree so you're looking at a lot of older brothers and little sister situations um that's that was the most common uh, mechanism or relationship of abuse. And when I shared my story in the book and what I did go through is not only does my book, it, it kind of starts that evening when I lost my mom and it carries the reader through the the very long, I won't say the exact amount of time because that's part of the shock of the book, but um, a very long time it took to convict him of murder, even though he was admittedly guilty that evening. And there were about 10 years of documented abuse. Um, our criminal justice system is pretty shocking. The way people can navigate it and abuse it is pretty shocking. And that's another facet of the story that I faced is that I was abused even once my brother was imprisoned and I was legally abused. I like to say that word because people don't realize it, 
two in two ways is it legal abuse. My brother was actually using the legal system to abuse me, and it was legal. It was allowed what he was doing. So hmm. um, it's it's really interesting. He he took the system and used it as a mechanism to control me and to emotionally and mentally exhaust me. He also tried to hire a hitman in that process. <laughs> I wrote about in the book. Um, yeah. And what's even more shocking is that since the book came out, it came out on April 6th, 2021. April 16th, I received notice of his first parole hearing. And at that parole hearing, he admitted to stabbing over 90 more people since being in prison. 90? 90? 90. 90. This was a recorded Zoom hearing, by the way. Um, and he actually he he threatened my life, my children's life. He he recited my address and told me that he could have me killed, have a friend visit me very easily. And when I tried to file something against him for that, they said it wasn't a hard enough threat. It wasn't. A, I was wow. like, actually, yeah, it, the way our system works is just really shocking. So I think one of the things that is really important in you talk about change making and people that that. But create these changes in society we don't really know they have to happen though until we talk about them so that's one Mm -hmm. reason why i share every facet of our story because i think my brother is one of the glaring examples of privilege and um abuse that happen in our society at large to be honest um i think what's interesting yeah what i think is interesting is that as you're talking about the manipulation that your brother had you know kind of used in the system against you a lot of people uh interact with people to different degrees that are feeling manipulated whether it's narcissist or you know those kind of things so i think the story is so relevant and what yeah. i loved about your book your book it, it hit me in the face on two things one is the humanity that you have as a human kind of moving through this life. The second, it was a love letter to your mother, you know? So if you're thinking about murder, betrayal, healing, like all I could hear was the relationship, the bond, the love that your mama had for you and your brother and just fought literally to her death for both of you and for herself. And that hit me in the feels deeply because my first book review was written by my third grade teacher (laughs) and all she, or no, I'm sorry. That one, my first one was my high school English teacher. And what she wrote was, this was a beautiful love letter to her mom. And I didn't even know that that was what it was until I read that review. And I was like, oh my God, she's right. So you reiterating that hits me deeply. And I thank you for extracting that from it because I don't even know if I knew that navigating that book (laughs) or navigating writing it. This was an act of healing for you, right? To write it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, And I'll say this. Another portion of that is one of my favorite experiences of this book. I was very nervous sharing it because I had told my dad I was writing it, but like I shared, he died before it came out. So yeah. I, I was like, well, he's got siblings I care deeply for. I care actually probably deeper for them than him because they were more present in my life than my father was throughout it. But um, And I was nervous how they would receive it. I was nervous how my mom's sister would receive it. My dad's brother messaged me or, or called me and said, basically, you know, you named things I went through at the hands of your dad. I didn't even know mm. my own experiences until you shared yours. So not only was I healing myself, but I was healing the generation before me in my family too. Um, and I didn't know that would happen. That's that's the beauty of sharing. And there is so much healing and catharsis to happen in that sharing. 
I'm very curious about your experience because you uh, are clearly somebody who is very complex, somebody that thinks very deeply. You present as somebody very joyful and happy. I think you're, you know, some people's battery naturally goes to the minus side and some go to the positive side. And to me, I mean, I I met you once, you know, and was just bowled over immediately. And I was like, I have to talk to her. I have to bring her on the podcast. But you are going through some of the darkest, you know, most unthinkable tragedies that most people will never get through. Did you feel supported through this process? And were your levels of support, were the people that supported you, did they, did that surprise you? That's such a layered and interesting question I never received. So thank you. Um, You know, I actually had to get out of a very toxic marriage before I could even share any of these. That's another reason why it took me 14 plus years to, um, to share is because my ex-husband was really uncomfortable with my healing. He liked to remind me where I was at when he met me, which was two months after my mom's murder. So I had a marriage and a relationship that did not support me an ounce in the healing, I think. That's my perspective. Um, wow. And he would often say, like, I thought you were a grief writer when I would write happy things or, um, you know, and, and he would it, or I was broken when I met him and he fixed me. These were things he actually said um, or my PTSD ruined our family. Things that just never nobody on this other this planet would ever say to me. Um, and it took me so many except my brother, to be honest. So there were hmm. the, the, it took me many years to realize I was actually absolutely unsupported. However, in my own marriage and in my in my own home, unfortunately. On the outside, though, and my family, my most of my friends, they were all very supportive. I would say, though, the support that mattered the most was my mom's. And I knew in my heart, even though she wasn't there, she would support me 100%. Um, I, again, I don't think she would ever mind being used as an example to heal the whole world i think she'd lose her mind knowing how the political experiences that have happened since her death and how things have shifted perhaps for the bad and the good um and i Mm. think that the support that really meant the most was support that i didn't really even have necessarily physically it just was so tenacious in her life that it persists after her death too um so yeah i mean i i had i persevered with a lot of support and despite the lack of support as well. Um, But I just think that my mom gave me a lot of lessons to know truly who I am and how to navigate things and how to trust my gut and my voice. And I returned to that and help Mm. writing the book actually helped that too. So I wanted to talk about the true crime part of Mm. this. So there's a fascination in the U S globally on true crime. And when I met you at, I met you at a podcast conference a few months ago and, you know, talking about some deep, heavy thing. I think it was a panel, um, about some, uh, about murders and things that happen in life. And when I talked to you, you were this little burst of energy. You're tiny. You're, you're like under five feet, aren't you? People, it's so funny because in this, this (laughs) internet world, people will meet me and be like, whoa, you have a lot bigger personality. And yeah, I'm I'm four nine. Yes. (laughs) But the urgency that you talk to me about the re-victimization of true crime that 
we're focused on the wrong things, that we're focused on the killer, the offender, the perpetrator, and it is glorified. It is, you know, dissected, you know, was he a sociopath? Was he a psychopath that could, and I wonder in our head, is it like, can that not happen to me? Or you try and identify what I think is interesting. And I would love your thought on this is that we are obsessed with true crime, but we're so afraid of grief. Like we can't mm. sit with discomfort. Where does this all come up? What, what is your position? What needs to change about true crime? I think it's more that people are afraid of change. And also we're drawn to the salaciousness of things. So they don't want to realize that the way they consume the true crime content is actually forming the true crime content they're receiving. So when we're watching more things that are salacious more than anything, they're going to keep making those kinds of things. Now, as a victim, I've been really lucky. I know that sounds very weird, but um, I've been privileged, if you will, in this space. My story has been told. As long as I want to tell it, people are listening. I'm trying. You know, sometimes it takes a little more work to be heard, but people are still listening. Um, There are a lot of people that are not heard. There are a lot of stories that are focused in the wrong way. This Dahmer movie that just came out, um, mm. it, I won't even watch it. The, a podcast called My Favorite Murder, no thank you. Nobody's mo- family's murder should ever be the favorite. Um, if, if somebody wrote a movie called Jesse, my brother's name, I would lose my shit. Now, here's a movie called Dahmer. He had a lot more victims than just one person. My brother had one victim. Um, I, I will share this. When my book came out and my, an episode, I did an episode of Evil Lives Here. Um, and the more I share my story, the more I'm compelled to share my story, not necessarily because my story needs to be heard over and over again, but the ramifications of how people receive it need to be heard over again. Um, Evil Lives Here came out, and I received an onslaught of very interesting messages. Someone reached out and said they were a Satanist and hoped myself and my family would die after wow. my sharing. Yeah, all about my mom's murder. I got people saying her wow. lips are... Yeah, no, I got people saying her lips are chapped. She must be on drugs. I mean, this is how people receive true crime content. While I'm spilling hmm. this horrible story, and they're watching this 911 call of me finding my mom's body and screaming to high heaven, they have thoughts on my on my physical appearance. So wow. I saw there's this overall callousness with the way we receive true crime. It might be this comfort of knowing that it can't affect us. It might be just this disconnect from the content because we're like, oh, it's a story. It's not somebody's really personal experiences. And I think all of those things harm society because all of our stories, quote unquote stories, or life experiences are true examples of how the system has failed us, right? My brother abused Mm. me and continues to abuse me and then threatened my life on a zoom recorded call and i can still in prison file in prison and he's going like this the entire like slicing his thumb across his throat to insinuate he'd have me murdered over and over throughout the whole thing and i still can't file against him that's a clear example but if our stories those stories those portions of the victim stories aren't being told we can't fix anything right it's getting stuck in the Dahmers and then all we're doing Mm. is perpetuating more Dahmers we're perpetuating more of those narratives I have been talking the more I share my story another really beautiful gift of it 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 comes is I'm meeting more victims people that are really brave and putting their stories out there somebody I recently spoke to escaped a 
a major cult. And in her dissection of her own story and sharing it with me, she said something really poignant. She said, um, and I don't know if you know this story at all, but the FLDS church was um, Mm. run by Warren Jeffs. And Warren Jeffs was highly abusive, right? And the woman mm-hmm. I spoke to, Elisa, Elisa Wall, she said... Oh, she's amazing. That she's girl amazing. Is a, what a badass. Amazing. Elisa said something very poignant, and it will never leave me. She said, Warren Jeffs, he's a portion of that story. He is, quote unquote, the bad guy, if you will, right? Do we have every movie focusing on the bad guy? No. Cruella, this is a new trend where we're finding out what made that bad guy. But in fictional stories, we're focusing on the positives we're focusing on the the people who are making change and and creating hope and and helping heal right that's the main character in move in fictional stories why are we not doing that in true crime that's where the true you know hope and true power comes from is giving the people that are listening and watching true crime stories hope and skills to survive if it happens to them or even just to improve their surroundings or society and it's something a really simple That's notion. It's mind blowing to me. Like right? I, I, I never notion. ever considered that. But it's probably you know, I was reading in Time magazine and they have a it's a, it's the human cost. It was an article called The Human Cost of Binge Watching True Crime series. And somebody said, We're treated as fodder. We're fuel for people's fascination. Victims. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. Like, do you get tired of talking about this or do you feel like it's a mission for you? It's definitely a mission. I don't get tired. I mean, I get, I no, that's not true. I always get tired. I mean, it's natural to get yeah, yeah, tired. Yeah. There's an ebb and flow to everything. But right. in that flow, I never get tired of it because there's so much to be changed. There has to be. Yes. And, these, and these are quite literally, how do we know what to fix if we're not talking about the holes in the system, right? Nobody yeah. knows that a murderer who is like, absolutely 100% guilty and captured that night took years to convict. Nobody realizes that because the stories stop when they're imprisoned and a movie wraps it up with a nice little bow because they make it seem like the legal process was really quick and then that's all. But most people don't realize is that um, I forgot to finish this portion of the story is that when my book came out and and The Evil Lives Here came out um, somebody reached out to me and he, he was super nice. He, you know, aside from all those awful messages I received, I do receive, I mean, hundreds more saying thank you yeah. for what you're doing. You are giving me the skills to leave this abusive relationship. Even though I don't know exactly what you were, went through, I feel those feelings too. You know, we're, we're communing and we're creating a community and a healing community. But somebody reached out to me and said, I was a victim and survivor of Jeffrey Dahmer. And I went, what? They're survivors of Jeffrey Dahmer. So I Google it to make sure I'm not reading reached out by this creepy person who's lying. And no, right. there are there are these there are these people who survived Jeffrey Dahmer. And I started talking to him and it turns out he did not participate. He was very affected by that movie, Dahmer. And the way that these stories are told is so tragic. There are people that survived him and they have to watch him being glorified. He's turned into T-shirts with like, you know, I'm going to eat you, whatever. Whatever these shirts oh my are. Goodness. I mean, things are... So people just don't realize how callous they've become. And, and it's a big responsibility to say, whoa, I'm part of the problem. And I think we all are. Like, I, I'm trying not to be, but <laughs> I actually consume true crime content too. Uh, my mom and I, growing up, we are big quote-unquote fans. I would never say I'm a fan of true crime now. I'm a fan of the genre 
and I'm a fan of the work that's being done and changing that changes that are happening from responsible true crime content. Mm, but, yeah, like Bone Valley. I don't know if you listened to that one. That's a really good one. No, um, I'm a huge fan of Something Was Wrong. (laughs) You were on uh, Something Was Wrong. All of season seven was about your story. Unbelievable. um, Tiffany is just an unbelievable content creator, and I have loved listening to even further episodes. But yes, she did share our family story on season seven. um, And just shows like that, Sarah E. Turney um, has a wonderful podcast. There's so many creators that have a stake in this space. That want to make yeah, it I'm wondering change. who's doing it right. Who's doing it right? Like whether it's there TV shows, people. podcasts. What are the responsible ones that are, are giving a different twist? Sorry. Um, I, you know, so I'm more of a, of a visual person. So I love documentaries. Um, there are some brilliant ones that have been made recently. One that really sticks out in my mind, though, as a non-brilliant one. <laughs> I mean, like, that pisses me off. It's an example yeah. of um, of what not to do was the bling ring one i don't know if you watched there was a netflix documentary and i forgot what it's called it could be called the bling ring i can't remember what it is but it's a documentary about those basically teens young 20 year olds that broke into a bunch of celebrities homes and stole a bunch of stuff um oh wow well apparently the the way the documentary started off was actually it was so appalling i turned it off within one minute to be honest but it was the voices of the bling ring people that actually stole. So first of all, they're in, they're empowering the perpetrator, not the victims. And the victims are people like Paris Hilton. Like they have a lot to to bring to this this conversation, especially right now. And they're they're the that documentary actually empowered the people that did the crime. And in the first minute, they start describing how they broke into these homes. They literally like laid out first you case the place, then you will. That evolve. sounds dangerous. Like it giving a guide exactly- to somebody else. Exactly. I thought it was so irresponsible as the the filmmakers. I think that they should face consequences. (laughs) Like there should be consequences um, for that. There there are just so many situations where you see negligence occur. And I think that's a negligent. Um, There are some really great documentaries out though. Like one, going back to to Elisa Wall, um, I absolutely loved Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. That was insane. Um, it was so powerful. I think it was well done. Um, I think they empowered and the right people. You know what I mean? The victims were given space to speak and tell their story. Um, yeah, that was... There There are a lot of shows and a lot of podcasts like that. However, unfortunately, there are a lot more that aren't. <laughs> I have to say, though, you know, when you think about the victims, and I... I uh, somehow am a cult enthusiast. I watch a lot of stuff about cult. I'm just fascinated by the need, the need to belong and how that can go haywire, you know? Um, and I wonder about shows that are highlighting the victims in a positive way, but there's so much confusion over, I don't know. I wonder if it's the binary view of, is this person good or evil? And I wonder about your relationship to your brother. Do you Mm. still have love for him? Nope. (laughs) Nope, not at all. Um, I have not an ounce of love. And I don't know if I ever did, because when I go back through that relationship so deeply, I can see abuse like very early on. And so any feelings I probably had towards him 
were a manifestation of the abuse. So I don't think anything I felt was authentic. Mm. I don't think anything he ever did to connect with me was authentic. I think that as almost as young as a deep connection can foster, that was when he was fostering his kind of sociopathic tendencies. So I just, yeah, no. um, Yeah, it's kind of an interesting space to be in. Um, And I almost feel, I think I wrote in my book, like I almost feel like, not that I'm a superhero in any way, but you know that pol- polarization of superhero and e- supervillain. Like I feel like we're yeah. on those uh, those opposing ends, and we cannot have any sort of relationship or love or anything. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know if societally there was some kind of pull to, you know, like despite all the things, the awful things that he did. Is it a hatred, like a rage in your heart? You know, like how do you, how do you I don't have that release the, the rage and continue to do the work that you're doing? You know, I don't. Is, it's have not a forgiveness. Is it a forgiveness? Yeah, it's not. I don't believe in forgiveness. It's so wow. interesting. Really interesting conversation. I love this. But, um, no, I don't. I I don't love him. I I don't. You know, I have fear of him at times. I have, yeah. especially when we have that hearing and he threatens my life and, you know, it's, it's ignited, but it's not hatred. It's a fear. Um, huh. It's not a love. It's not, I try not to expend too much energy on him, even though I'm talking about our family and our story yeah. and the abuse and my mom's murder a lot. I'm not even investing into the idea of him. I don't believe in forgiveness. I think that that I'm well first of all I'm Jewish so we don't have that tenet of forgiveness in our religion it's more of like um we yeah we don't we don't like to to forgive you have to you know or to to heal you have to forgive no we that's not something that's really spoken about um and I don't even I think that's kind of a fallacy I have to forgive myself there are a lot of platitudes that say that that can be very confusing yeah well I think what we're confusing about it is when you're abused, there's a shame and we carry that shame for a long time. I think there is a forgiveness you have to give yourself. Like I gave myself forgiveness because a child, Amy, allowed herself to be abused. I never reported the sexual abuse I faced at my brother's hands. I never, my mom didn't know the depth of the abuse I faced, even though she faced such deep abuse at his hands. There was a lot more she didn't know. I forgave myself for not reporting it. I forgave myself for carrying that shame and I work at lifting that shame that's the work I do the healing I do um but I don't forgive him I don't think I have to to be light you know you said I I seem like a joyful person I am for the Mm -hmm. most part there's an ebb and flow to everything like I said naturally yeah but I am an overall joyful person I was before my mom was murdered I was almost immediately after not because of her murder my god that's been my the abuse that I faced before her murder and my her murder and the abuse I faced afterwards have been <laughs> awful. But I always had that tenacious spirit, that joyful, mm-hmm. tenacious spirit in me. My mom fostered it in me. She made sure nothing broke it, including my brother. So um, I definitely, I forgive my mom too. I definitely forgive my mm. mom because I'm a, I'm a mother now. And at times I was like, what the fuck? Why could, how could she forgive him so much? How could she let him back in over and over? Um, and now I'm a mom. Oh God, I forgive her deeply. I don't think I would ever mm. be able to, to navigate that situation differently, especially in the nineties. 
when she was having him arrested and he was being held in a drunk tank or, you know, central jail, um, you know, she or, or calling doctors to help him and going to therapy and him getting fired from, you know, he would he would yell racial racial slurs at them and they would quit seeing him so he wouldn't have any doctors to see anymore um we had no means to deal with him especially at that time so i've definitely forgiven her but i will never forgive him and i don't think it's a a weight i'm carrying it's just a reality it sounds like you have successfully disconnected from the relational ties from it where you can operate in a you know, in a functional way where you're like, I'm not him. I'm not him. I don't, even though he shares my blood and my DNA, I'm not oh, him. I'm, I, I'm not required to be him. And so I wonder if there is a judgment on Amy. What if, you know, like, are, are, is there any worry that your kids or somebody, you know, like something like that, that there are tendencies that oh, might God. be in you? I mean, you know, Quite honestly, one of my biggest fears was having a son. And um, I had a daughter You have a son and a daughter, right? I have a son and a daughter. So I had a a daughter first. That was my initiation to parenthood. Thankfully, (laughs) oh God, I prayed for a daughter um, just because of that fear of a son. And then I got pregnant again and I found it was a boy. And he actually is born one day before my brother. So his birthday is... So I... And it was a mindfuck. And it's been a mindfuck. But... um, Every day I get to know my son more and more. He is the polar opposite of my brother. He is quite literally almost my twin in personality. Mm. <laughs> um, and we get each other so deeply and we connect so deeply. And he is, I mean, for a seven-year-old, like my children are a lot deeper than they need to be. And that's because of some trauma, you know, that divorce brings. But also he, they know about my family history. Um mm-hmm it kind of got exposed in a, in a way that I probably wouldn't have picked, but they know now and we've had some deep conversations about it. And he, he knows about my brother and he said things like, I can't understand how a boy would do that to his mommy. Cause this is a boy mm. who literally proposes to me every day. He said to me yesterday, he goes, I know my mom, my wife's name. And I said, what? And he goes, Amy Winnick Chesler. Oh, <laughs> so cute. Uh, um, so, any fear I ever had is out the window. I mean, I fear my brother hurting my children, which he's threatened, but I don't yeah. ever fear my children being him because nobody is, I mean, no, I, I, I have all the tools my mom didn't have. I have all the, um, um, what's the word? The resources my mom, my mom didn't have. And I have all the love my mom did give me. And I think that, mm. um, yeah, no, I think I'm actually healing a lot of trauma in my family by by doing the things like I've you have to right yeah. the generational stuff. And when I was thinking about your book, and I can't remember the context, but I think it was something your mom wrote in a journal, where it may be a journal, but it was it was a, a note to you and your brother Rory. Um, is Jesse his first name? Is real first? Yeah, name? Rory. I made it up. Um, to be honest. I just made up Rory because I didn't want to type his name over and over and over again. Oh. I was like, I don't oh. want to read the word I didn't realize that Jessie. was a made-up name. Okay. Yeah, I did not want to say Jesse and type Forgive Jesse me. and read Jesse. No, so I was like, fuck yes, it, I'm yes. changing his name. So yeah, no, his name is Jesse. Rory was completely made up. I thought I was like, what oh. other, like, like <laughs> Jesse is not quite the most, ma- like, you know, inherently masculine. Like, it's kind of like yeah. gender fluid. So I gave him another gender fluid name and that was that. 
<laughs> well, I thought, you know, she was talking about her wishes for you and your brother. And they were like, as a mother myself and listening to it, you could feel the heartache and the hopes of just hoping. And I could see that you, you were leaning all the way in and saying, yes, yes, I understand. I understand. I'm going to take this and I'm going to run with it. And it's, it's been beautiful to watch, um, the progression of her teachings because your mom seemed cool as hell. She seemed like she was so wise and just, you know, you guys had such an incredible relationship, right? Oh, she was such a badass. But her thinking was the right, you know, like her thinking in terms of the advice she was giving you, you know, despite all the abuse, she was like, her heart was so deeply in the right place, you know? And I wonder what does justice look like for you Mm. today? Um, so something I've learned in my experiences and another reason why I really do tell this story over and over again and talk about us and our family history as much as I can is that there is no justice. It, there, there's no way to find it. Mama's um, not coming back. Right. No. And that's why I write working for justice because quite literally it'll be for the rest of my life, whether it's because she's not coming back or because I have to fight the parole system forever. I've already started that. Nine and a half years after my brother was convicted, I saw the first parole hearing. So I only got like about nine. So he's convicted for murder in only nine years. And then he's trying to manipulate the system, right? And he's he's blatantly threatened my life and all this shit. And he's still not, and he still has another parole hearing next year. So that's another thing is that there is no justice. A lot of times... I recently spoke to a victim of Bill Cosby. I mean, she was like tortured, brutalized, and he's not in jail. (laughs) He faced three years and then was pulled out like, oh, sorry, we said we wouldn't convict him. And that's why he got out because um, uh, like a non-aggression, whatever the non, I forgot the words, but um, it's just crazy. Our system has so many holes in it. And once a person's life is stolen anyways, there is no justice. There's no money that would um, ever make it worth it. There's no, there's no time that heals the wound. There's no any amount of anything that can be given. My children still don't have their grandparent. They'll never meet my mom. Um, there is no justice. And the system brutalizes us even more. So there is doubly no justice. Um, Yeah, that's just a reality. What do you fight for? What are you fighting for? I am fighting to make the system better for other people in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, I want it so if somebody threatens somebody at a parole hearing on camera, they're immediately tacked on with extra time. I mean, I want victims to be believed. I want there to be a space for safe space for reporting. I want there to be no statute of limitations for sexual abuse. I mean, then I could tack on some time for my brother now, right? Like, um, Mm. there's just, there's so many things to be changed. And again, without that example, without awareness, how do you change anything? You can't change what you don't know has to change. Um, So that's what I am sharing for. That's what I'm fighting for. Um, Yeah, I... I always and kind I of see you've got a change dot org. You've got a yes. change dot org thing about this parole. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. The petition um, that you're passing around. You know, there. The only thing I found is that there's strength in numbers, and the more people, the more an 
awareness there is about this situation, the more strength I have in it. So that's another thing. I recently created a petition. I thought, how can I make sure he stays in prison after threatening my life just now and after only being in there for however many years um you know and also he had like an extra year for using a knife but then that extra year just got dropped because we got a new governor Mm. things like that so um i i want all of that time to be served i want him to stay in prison and so i created a petition because i do believe that again there is strength in numbers um and i've shared it on my instagram um i think that's kind of like the most stationary place it is i also have it on my twitter and all over but yeah um i created a a petition to say keep jesse winnick in prison and i basically laid all out the history of our abuse i laid out the um, i i wrote out a transcript of that zoom recorded hearing that first parole hearing um, and I explained why I'm going to another parole hearing in a year because he exercised more abuse and postponed his parole hearing for two years. Mm. So, yeah. I thought what was interesting that you detailed this in the book that he would have an attorney assigned to him and then the attorney would get so pissed off because he would purposely make it so difficult to work with him that they would quit and he'd have to get another one that would have to go through all of the discovery back, you know, and then the clock resets the clock. We see this in our political government now for crimes that are committed in broad daylight for some of the highest political figures, you know? And so that was really interesting to me of how you can game the system pretty easily and legally um, and just act a fool really. Oh, he well, he had like these three tactics. He went like rocking roundabout with them, like you know whatever that is. But he he would he would either abuse his lawyer to a point where they just wouldn't want to show up for him and quit on him. Like he would racially swear, or you know, like he. My mom was like the least. Uh, to, he was like literally the worst of anything that could have come from her. But he basically would, you know, if he had a a doctor of a of any sort of. De- dissent he would he would pummel them with words and like target them racially because of that he did the same thing with his lawyers he had a female lawyer all he did was harass her about being a woman and she quit on him uh then Mm. he would represent himself and say he needed months to actually you know get to acquainted with the paperwork and then as soon as he was acquainted with the paperwork he would hire a new lawyer and then they needed to be acquainted with the paperwork that was so Um, maddening yeah or he would he would get on medication and say he was unfit without it and then he would get Mm. off of it so then he'd have to get back on it like and and find new medication i mean it was just yeah it was Um, a thing so what kind of progress have you seen in this space that you that you that give you hope (laughs) none um (laughs) I mean, um, maybe no, even the I, crime space, you know, these, no, these I programs, say, you know, no, yeah. I haven't seen anything legally change, um, much, mm. but I do see the conversation changing. And that is, like mm. I've said, the first step. I'm just hoping we don't get stuck in that step. Um, and that is one reason why I would consider running for office too, because I, I love that. a lot of, it's easy. Well, <laughs> I, my children are like, yeah, go mommy, mayor, mommy. No, um. I think it's so important to not get stuck in those steps. We have to talk about it, but then we have to do something to change it as well. Um, And I think we're getting into a space where a lot more politicians are motivated to change things. I think society in general, we're becoming emotionally aware. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think it's important not to get stuck in that. And we have to take that awareness and then make change with it because this is, I mean, this is such a sick cycle we're stuck in. Mm-hmm. This is such an illuminating conversation. What do you know that you wish other people could know? Gosh, um, I think something I've realized in my work is that the nature of coercive control is at the heart of almost all toxic relationships and abuse and murder and mm. shootings in grocery stores and politicians. Control. Yes, wow. and po- politicians that are toxic and even the Holocaust. You know, Hitler's reign over... I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but at, at the heart of all of our stories, all of these stories, Dahmer, everything is coercive control and the idea that somebody can use their power over another human being. And part of that lesson to be drawn is those warning signs. You know, my brother's abuse towards us was cyclical and snowball-like, right? All abuse is like that. Every situation, whether it's professional abuse, and professional abuse can have be just having a really toxic boss who makes you work over time, you know, over time and not properly... Or maybe even just making you work overtime and even still compensating you. That is still professional abuse. Every situation at the heart of all of these things that we need to change, there is that level of control and coercive control that we need to be aware of. And again, all of them have the same mechanisms of abuse. Um, And in order to make change, we have to be aware of them. That is so powerful. How do people buy your book and get in touch with you? Um, my book is available everywhere books are sold. <laughs> uh, working for justice. Working, working for, justice. for justice. Yeah, available on Amazon, Audible. Um, a warning, though, it is not, I was not the narrator of the story. So people are like, whoa, it's not Amy. and Because I've done so many podcast interviews, they're expecting to hear my voice. It's not mine, but it is still a very... Awesome. You know, I loved the way she did it. Um, but yeah, did available everywhere. Thank you. Uh, available everywhere. Um, yeah, and I have some other future projects coming out that I can't quite talk about yet, but really exciting things in the works, um, specifically with other creators that I know and love and trust that have the same mission of making change, positive, responsible change in the true crime sphere. Um yeah, so I'm just, I'm excited about what the future will hold for myself and for fucking society. We need a change. <laughs> yeah, like you said at the beginning, the, there's power in numbers. And it sounds like you teaming up with some powerful people will make a huge impact. And you're Amy B. Chesler on all platforms. I'll link everything in the show notes. Amy, thank you so much for your work. It's important. Thank you. Yours is as well. I appreciate you offering your platform to me. Thank you. Amy Chesler, you are joyful. You are purposed. And I'm so grateful for your mission. Y'all, I hope you go buy her book, Working for Justice, One Family's Tale of Murder, Betrayal, and Healing. I just couldn't put it down, and I'll link it in the show notes along with her socials. As for me, I'm really excited about the members of the Clearing Challenge who are being so intentional with clearing a space for 2023 and setting the table for a much more purposeful uh, new year and being able to get rid of what no longer serves you. 
in this year. So it's become an unburdening in the final year of this year. But join us for free at allisonhair.com forward slash clearing. Please keep sharing these episodes when you share them among your circles and write public reviews for me on your favorite podcast player. It is the most important feedback I can get to make this show better and to help others continue to find me as an independent podcaster. Also, it fills my bottomless pit of a heart (laughs) that continuously needs filling. So please keep doing it. Be good to yourself so you can be better for others. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.